I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 63 of Talking Golf History, and an episode we are simply calling The Gathering. On our pilgrimage to the home of American golf, Von Halyard orchestrated this gathering, bringing together Golf Club Atlas the Donald Ross Society, Kyle France Design, Story Lounge Film Company, and the Society of Golf Historians. A group of people and organizations that care about golf course architecture and the history of our game. We share our thoughts on the history of golf design and the importance of good design in growing the game of golf. Recorded and filmed at Golf Club Atlas Headquarters, I proudly present Rand Morissette, Kyle France, Matt Smallwood, Vaughn Halyard, and Brad Beckin in The Gathering. Welcome to Talking Golf History. Today we have an unusual show. We have a roundtable of uh, golf history and architecture with us. We're going to go around the table and introduce ourselves, but the one thing we all have in common is a love for architecture and Donald Ross. So, Rand, why don't you kick us off here? Tell us a little bit about yourself. In Golf Club Atlas uh, World International Universal Headquarters, dun, dun, dun. and I'm wondering why there are five guys in this small room with me. But be that as it may, we're going to have a good time. Um, I moved here in 2000 in part because in the 1890s, my great grandfather was a local lawyer up in Carthage. And Mr. Tufts came into his law office interested in buying land south of him. And they struck a relationship that then followed with Mr. Tufts' son and um, followed for um, 20 years. We have lots of correspondence back and forth between the two families. So this has always been my home. And I was when I moved here from Australia, I was very proud to make it home of Golf Club Atlas. That's fantastic. Uh, Kyle, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Kyle Franz, golf course architect. Uh, I live here in Pinehurst, working on Mid Pines, Pine Needles, Southern Pines. Worked a little bit on Pinehurst Number Two for Corn Crenshaw. I started my career for working for Tom Doak at Pacific Dunes out in Bannon as an intern, and then went on to uh, Barnbugle Dunes a couple years after that. Two of the first three. I thought we were going to do that every year, you know, <laughs> top top ten, yeah, top ten modern every time. Uh, and then worked a little bit with Corn Crenshaw on Bannon Trails, which turned London to. Uh, Piner's number two restoration and then it was on uh, from there to doing my solo work at the resorts that I just mentioned here. I live uh, right on the grounds at Mid Pines Pine Needles we've done two big restorations there and then we're on to Southern Pines and all kinds of other exciting stuff around the country between Country of Charleston, Minicotta Club as we were discussing uh, some really cool places out there that's for sure. So. Amazing alright Matt you're up uh, this is Matt Smallwood here uh, Philadelphia native um, 
got into the golf course industry on the opposite side of architecture where I was, you know, maintaining a vineyard golf club in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Uh, we were fortunate enough to do a, an 18 hole renovation, uh, with hands golf design, uh, which is where I met Kyle and, you know, day in and day out working with those guys on the maintenance side of it and seeing them create something so awesome. Um, gave me the courage to say, Hey Kyle, you know, how do I get into this? Uh, so he was fortunate enough to, you know, give me the opportunity and he was starting pine needles there. Uh, so he came down and threw me in a machine and I've worked for him for the last few years, a number of different projects. And now a few years later, he's better shape than I am. <laughs> and I, I got to see your work out there today too. Uh, yeah. 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 We're moving along well. It was on 17, right? Yep. Left yeah. Side of 17. Gorgeous Big bunker going in there. I hope so. Looks like a bottomless pit. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in it. <laughs> Matt has become an excellent shaper. Yeah. Excellent shaper. I am Connor Lewis. Uh, I'm your host, obviously, with Tug and Golf History. I'm also the founder of the Society of Golf Historians. Uh, I'm, I feel like the also ran of this group without the importance of ran. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead, Vaughn. Oh, God. How do you follow really bad puns? <laughs> with Vaughn. Uh, yeah. Uh, Vaughn, Hall- Vaughn Halliard. Um, I was a golf chair at a restoration in Cedar Rapids and a member of the golf magazine panel and sort of one of the media heads of uh, Golf Club Atlas. <laughs> because, the media head. And the Society of Golf Historians. That's yeah, fault. Because I, I drag the Luddites around, right? <laughs> 30,000 of you, this is what Vaughn looks like when he kicks you off the page. <laughs> <laughs> don't do stupid shit, you won't get kicked off. Don't, don't talk politics, don't do it. Or goat it. talks, no goat talks. Uh, but also, probably Cedar Rapids was a was a Donald Ross uh, course restoration, and next to me is uh, Brad Beckin, the president of the Donald Ross Society, of which I'm a board member as well. Brad, my name is Brad Beckin. Um, I am a relatively latecomer to golf. Um, I'm a retired investment banker, and I didn't even start playing golf until my late 30s, when Goldman Sachs transferred me from New York City to Los Angeles. Um, I ended up joining Los Angeles Country Club, got very interested in golf, and then discovered Donald Ross even later when I retired and I was scratching around for something to do. I've since played every one of his courses. I've got a couple thousand copies of his whole drawings that I've studied. Um, Big fan of Ross. And uh, now, as Vaughn said, I'm president of the Donald Ross Society. LICC, is that on golf now or no? (laughs) This is why we don't invite Vaughn to talk during podcasts. That's true. Uh, let me, I'll kick it off for um, Brad and Ran on this question. So Pinehurst frequently called the American home of golf, right? It had the, uh, it's not the first ever public golf course. That was Van Cortland Park. It's not the first ever golf course in America. There were plenty before. Why do you think, Ran, I'll start with you and then Brad. Why do you think it, it's earned that designation? Well, because it embodied a brand of golf that lured people to play it. Um, First, it was set on sandy soil. um, And back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, conditioning was a problem. Um, And then, of course, Donald Ross took it to a whole nother um, level. And he knew what to do and how to shape sandy soil. Um, but it's really that it's, it's, um, it's the kind of golf that you can, um, 
one of the reasons I moved here from Australia was it would be great for my children to learn how to play golf here. And then it would also be great for me to grow old here. And it, and it has golf everywhere in that spectrum. You can go to a lot of places that have championship golf, very hard golf, this, that, and the other, golf that looks spectacular on television. But this is the kind of golf that you're happy to go play six, eight holes, you know, five days a week. So I'm delighted to make it home. Yeah. Brent, you want to add any thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that makes this area so important is really connected to Donald Ross. When you look at the way golf really got started in the United States in the early 20th century, there weren't very many courses here. Pinehurst was really the first resort. And people from all over the country were coming here to play, most of whom were playing on a golf course that had been designed by somebody else who probably wasn't an architect. And all of a sudden you come here and you see the work that Donald Ross is doing, and it's like, this, this is pretty good. And they in turn end up hiring him. So I think that was a really a symbiotic relationship where people came here, Piners became very important, and then it also became a vehicle for promoting Ross's career because they were hiring him to go to Chicago or Detroit or, or wherever to design a course for them. Yeah, I think one of the other cool, I'd, I'd say, curveballs or connections is, for the most part, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pinehurst Southern Pines has kind of a Scottish membership going about it, where there are members of a private club that allow public play. And that's a unique entity, at least in the United States. Most of our private courses are private only, or they have uh, outings for charities, and that's their best way to get on. But here, the best courses, for the most part, can be played by the any day citizen. Is that fair? Exactly like St. Andrews. Yeah. Right? I mean, so they're kissing cousins. Yeah. Ah, another attachment. So let's get into a little bit of the architecture. I know you're working on Southern Pines right now, gentlemen. What's it like restoring a Donald Ross gem? You know, I always say that that restoration architecture, and really great restoration architecture, not just you know kind of standard stuff and going through the motions, uh, is really one part archaeology as much as it is architecture you know um, our job is to look at these old aerials look at the uh, the plans if we have them um, and then look at what we have in front of us in the field and really try and get ourselves in the head of what Ross was trying to accomplish out there and really just analyze the ground you know if you, if you follow the first piece three pieces or so you know um, all the other pieces start to fall in line you know prime example of what we're working on the first hole where ross was basically trying to obscure the landing zone with mounds and these bunkers on the right hand side of the hole and how he placed everything out there you know the the tee shot landing zone it's 65 yards wide out there but from the tees it looks like it's about 25 yards wide he was just playing with the perspective down there and as we worked on the master plan for the hole we had a sense where there that was going but once you start to put the pieces together out there uh it really starts to become like a true piece work of art like he intended out there and that's why you know a lot of the times when i see really truly great restoration work it's because everybody went to the next step forward or the next step form and didn't just look at the aerial and just kind of paint by numbers but they really try to get in the head of, of what he was trying to accomplish add a thing here and there that makes it feel like what he wanted to accomplish you get the blood pumping shots that he intended and all the the the, the puzzle pieces come together and uh and you really get some really outstanding results uh, matt before i come to you let me ask you another question so kind of piggybacking on that um, I understand that you didn't have the original drawings, like Tufts Archives did not have the original drawings. How do you 
renovate a golf course? What's the best way to renovate a golf course, in this case, a Donald Ross, without the original drawings? Yeah, a lot of us just pulling different pieces together from different places. You know, one, we have uh, some great aerials of the property originally. uh, And then second, we have some diagrams of the holes in the 1940s that really are very illustrative. They show you things that even the aerials, you'd have to really, really grind through to find them. Or even if you find them at all, for example, you know, it kind of shows you where some mounds were. It shows you exactly where the grassing line moves were. And that's crucial. It's it's very important to understand with Ross's style of architecture here, with the sandy hardpan wiregrass areas around the holes, that the bunkers were only a piece of the package, you know, on so many golf courses, they define the strategy of the whole along with the green complexes. Um, but the movements and the grassing lines are equally as important to the strategy. He really should use them a lot of the time just to get people thinking about where they needed to go and not go. Um, so those have been very illustrative in, in terms of even just showing us mounds that would be impossible to find in, in an aerial. Um, so those two pieces together are really helpful. However, on this project in particular, you know, we're, we're trying to hone in a particular period of Ross's work, you know, in his, in his 40 plus years, uh, living and working here, he was always changing the holes. Like you can never find two aerials or maps are the same master tinker. Yes. So, you know, we, we tried to settle in on a specific period when we did the course, uh, two restoration with Corn Crenshaw, his early 40s stuff needles was more like his late 40s stuff. Uh, Mid Ponds is going authentic right to when they finished the green complexes and some really bold bunkering. This project, we're trying to do more his 20s stuff, which is really pretty artsy and some pretty wily stuff. Um, so that that really pushes us to really look at a lot of like the 19-teens and 20s maps and try and figure out what the things we're seeing on the ground. A mound here, an odd feature there where you can tell a bunker was filled in, trying to put ourselves into like what this thing really looked like in the, uh, the 1920s. So a lot of it is... is um, um, you know, using the historical data that we have, and then also a little bit of improv, just seeing what we're seeing on the ground out there. And fortunately, within the case of Southern Pines, the irrigation lines have almost changed. None; of, they haven't been changed at all at any point since. So you can actually use them, much like we did on Pine Ridge Number Two, to find where there was big curvatures and changes in the right. grassing lines yeah. out there. So, so I understand John LaFay was out there in 1988. Yeah, was, yeah. I assume Late that's not really 90s. like a restoration work in 88. Is there an undoing? I mean, architecture and specifically restoration has changed a lot since mm. the 80s and 90s. Yep. Do you find yourself going back a bit on what you saw when you came in? There's a lot of a lot of uh, just research into that that we have done. Fortunately, when, when uh, LaFoy worked on the Greens, um, he did. I know his system because I've dealt with it at the Country Club of Charleston, um, where he would do a survey of the greens and then he would do his plans off of those surveys from the office. So we actually have cross sections of the exact elevations of each and every green out there. So what we have done is we've analyzed the uh, the surveys that he had to figure out what the elevations of the greens were not. We've even gone out and done like we've dug and we've done post hole digs to find out like layers in the greens and whatnot. We just worked on the front of the 18th green as our test taste or our taste tester to figure out if you know the elevations where things have changed. A lot of times they would fill out in front of the greens, but we found that mostly the core of the green and the back of the green is usually on the exact same grade. We can find a, a green layer that's almost identical but because they filled out in the front it's created kind of these walls in front of the green where you can't hit the ground game shots in so we're clipping off the front of those and kind of putting them back so you get the fun skipper shots that uh that rosh intended but that's just another prime example of a kind of a off uh 
that's not something that a lot of the time you uh, you either have or you uh, you can utilize. So Boris, we've used a lot, utilized that really to figure out what the heck we got to do with these green complexes. And it can change project to project. Sometimes they would keep the original elevations of the greens. When we were working at, at uh, Raleigh Country Club last year, as, as Matt can allude to, because he built a lot of this stuff, the, uh, um, the greens had all been raised up. They would build the greens on top of the old greens. And there's some of that that we found in, in some places at uh, – at, um, at Southern Pines, like the 11th green, the 13th green, which we'd like to change completely. Uh, but in the case of Raleigh Country Club, it was egregious. It was like the the 18th green, for example. It had been raised up by two feet in the front to the point where it was just this big wall, this incline leading up into the green. We actually took the old USGA green out. So you got your 16-inch you know, column is taken out. And at the bottom of the old well, you could see the old push-up green to the point where you could still see the old airification hole plugs in it. The color changes so you could tell exactly where the real elevation of the green was that we needed to get back to. Yeah. So just us being out there as, as a design and build firm, we're going to find stuff like that. If you just had a contractor doing it, you would never find that thing. They would just simply blaze through it right. and they would do whatever was on the plan. Whereas Matt and I just looked at this like, well, this is where we got to be to get back to Ross's grade, and that's exactly where, where we put it. No, Matt, oh, go ahead, yeah. One of the key things, though, is that um, John LaFoy didn't move any of the greens. Well, that's fantastic, yeah. Right. You don't have to so undo, find. Ross's routing, and, you know, I've, I've lived here for 20 years and played it over a thousand times, and there are a lot of cool contours within the greens. There are. Yeah, so, I mean, so it's been always been a delight to play. And then, but but it, Kyle's going to take it back to that early, you know, first second decade of, of down yeah. losses. Um, I mean, I walked it today, and I mean, where you are expanding and contracting the greens, I just found really fascinating. I, I took too many photos of the flags, just seeing where things were going to go, and then wondering like, how are you going to shape this area around that's on this mound? Are you keeping the mound and just you know shaving it down, or are you going to? You know, shape all around that green. Yeah, the, probably the, depends. The answer is D, all of the above. <laughs> That's you know, right. Uh, in some cases, where again, like eleven or thirteen, we know that the elevation has been changed, but by and large, you know, uh, the uh, um, a lot of them are pretty close. So we just got to kind of, you know, the term that I use, we got to kind of D ninetiesify it. You know, sure. it's, it's it has the feel of a nineteen nineties course where they've added some some mounds and some feature work that just don't look like an old Ross course. And you know, having finished the greens. Uh, uh, mid ponds which are very well preserved they're the most perver- uh, well preserved set here um the uh the greens had never been shelled out and turned into usga greens. so really all we had to do was just kind of expand them around the margins and then there was only there was one green that they had changed and i think the superintendent at the time had maybe thought that it was a bad idea that they were going to change it because he left us like a hundred and it was a stack literally this big it was 150 photos from every angle of the green so i was able to put it back exactly the way that it was so really when you get right down to it it's the only green here that you can see where they didn't turn into usj greens it's the final float as we call it, the final detail work of ross's is still exactly the the way that it was so that gives you know uh us a, a great basis you know we go out there and we went out and looked at the 12th green last night because that's really our model for narrowing down the 16th green but the getting that detail work right where we take down the features that look a little bit too modern uh or raise sections to get a whole location that has been lost and just get the whole thing to feel like we're going back to to 1935 nice so matt you're out there shaping uh you hear a lot of podcasts there's a lot of shows out there where they're talking to kyle not a lot of people are talking to the shapers right you're like the unsung hero when you're out into the you're on the field and you're shaping a bunker you're shaping slope you know how much of it is working you know off of a drawing and how much of it is 
like the feel of the land in front of you and the idea of where you're going to go? How much artistry versus scientific is there? Uh, Well, I think you could probably say 90% of it is artistry. And then, you know, there's certain aspects of it that are, you know, set in stone. How are you going to get water around the bunker? You know, we do a lot of native areas here. You know, we don't want water rushing over, uh, you know, and just completely destroying the bunker. And I understand that, you know, being on the maintenance side where this Kyle's a little less, you know, forgiving in some areas. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's uh, guilty. It, uh, I would say, you know, you know, 90% of it is, you know, how we have, you know, the style, like he said, you know, we want to do the 20s eras, you know, Ross bunkers, you know, they're bigger, vaster. Um, probably a little easier to maintain and you know they're not quite as flash as you say with sure. mid pine bunkers um, but you know we also you know get to do the archaeology part that Kyle said the left side of 16 where you saw me working uh, it's probably you know 50 yard long bunker and back then they didn't deconstruct them you know properly so yeah. they just dug a hole and you know put clay in it so I can you know get down and kind of chase the sand around and yeah uh, and, and so word to the wise when it's done don't miss left. Do not miss left. <laughs> right to fall off to, to Hades, but don't miss left. Yeah, I guess so, don't miss that green. It looked like a dangerous on both sides. Yeah, so I mean that, and that leads a lot of you know some of the final shape. You try to follow you know where you think you know the sand line was and where you're still finding sand. And yeah. So yeah, it's. Um, now, how much of it is uh, surprise? So I understand. I don't think it was on sixteen. Uh, I don't know whether it was a uh, part of the bunker restoration, but you found an odd pipe in there i think the superintendent told me like how often does that pop up that's popped up i think on essentially every feature we've worked on so far, <laughs> so far. you, you so find far. the old uh, terracotta clay drainage pipe that they use mm-hmm. uh you know and they never took it out of the ground so it's still in there taking water and you know kind of creating a mess for us to clean up you yeah. know because the water's in there it gets bumpy and driving the machines over it so yeah that's another good you know archaeology type thing that we can you know find the edges of things with you know the old drainage tiles and yeah it's great so ran you've been involved with this have you not at southern pines have you just been assisting in any way the restoration Uh, i mean i'm uh uh we walk our dog um over there every day and just um you're not Very yelling like it. Kyle, not there, no, over there. No, that no, doesn't no. happen, Kyle. No, no, no. There, you don't. The the best thing you can do is hire the right people and let them do their job and stay back. Yeah, and that's it, always the case, and that's, that's what's happened here. That's fantastic. Now, Vaughn, he's being humble though because <laughs> I love this guy's feedback, and he did get to see the plans before anybody else did. So. <laughs> For feedback, he you can't see it. There's a wry smile on Rand's face right now. Mischievous, oh, perhaps. A secret, a secret weapon. Secret, both him and Chris Bowie. So let's look at it from uh, the restoration side from the club. Vaughn, uh, you were part of the restoration uh, committee for Cedar Rapids Country Club, which was a couple years back, and there were some bumps along the way, I believe, in that process. Can you walk us through what it's like handling it from the club standpoint? Uh, yeah. You know, we had... Um, you know, we had a, 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 a quiet Donald Ross restoration where we had to fix some infrastructure. So about 60% of what we had to deal with was getting water off the course, flooding, um, some busted tiling. And it, it just came to the point where our super said, look, we're going to make all these fixes. I've been making fixes for years. If you guys don't do a master plan, I quit. This is stupid. You got bunkers from 
you know, we had bunker styles from Florida. We had bunker styles from Scotland. We had bunker styles from uh, from Arizona, and he he, and it just was a hodgepodge. And there was no respect for the Ross legacy necessarily. Uh, and luckily, we formed a long range planning committee and started doing some research, and and found some of the Ross history. But then really took a an archaeological look at if we're going to do it, let's see what we can do. Um, we talked to three architects. We found Ron Pritchard, and he walked us through the prop through the plan. And the best thing he said was, you know, this. You looked at the um, the place had become a veritable tree farm. He looked around. And he said, "Look, this grass has survived for about a hundred years. You haven't managed to kill it yet. Let's get some uh, air and some light on it, and cut some trees and and try and restore it and get some drainage. Let's see how we do." And it, and it came out really well. And you have a, you have a new restoration coming up too. We we walk, do maybe walk through the problem of what happened. Yeah, so we we had a tremendous uh, outcome with Ron, and then Ron brought Tyler Ray in, and uh, uh, they did a phenomenal job. Uh, at the point where we started getting ranked in a number of the national publications, uh, top 100 in Golf Week, and just outside the top 100 in golf. Um, Membership, you know, the ROI and membership was fantastic. We went, I was the first, you know, national member, and now we have up to 40 or 60. Uh, just tremendous feedback. And then just last year, we finished that restoration in 2015. We suffered a, a derecho, which is basically an inland hurricane, straight line winds uh, sustained at 100 miles per hour with gusts up to 145. And it took out over 1,000 trees. And the first restoration took out 500-ish, would you say, or was it? We tell people somewhere around over a thousand. Okay, so you lost, you doubled the tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and give it gives some maybe everyone an idea of how do you think that event and the second restoration, if you will, will affect the club. I think it'll make it better. That's, That's just my yeah. Thought. You know, this is this is a a a golf aficionado and a golf course architecture focused conversation. So I think we could have that conversation. Uh, for people who grew up there and knew that uh, they always knew it as a tree line, heavily tree lined course, you couldn't tree see farm. Yeah. As a member of Elmcrest Country Club in Cedar Rapids, you were familiar with. I, it. I gave a, a, a talk about golf history. This is ten years ago uh, at Cedar Rapids Country Club, and they they gave me a free round which I never used. <laughs> Pre restoration. Now I played it for the first time uh, two years ago, and was literally blown away. Yeah. I mean, I, it's one of my favorite courses I've played. I love it that much. We had a couple of really nice events, including a Donald Ross Society event. Um, some of the Golf Magazine crew came through all within weeks before the derecho. Uh, and I think that almost every tree that people had seen, especially on the front where number two, three, four had you know some tree pockets that you would play, all those lanes are gone. It was basically clear cut. So I think it's going to be a fascinating recreation and sort of now you really do have to envision what Ross would have done with essentially a a barren piece of hilly land. Yeah. Uh, some of the views are spectacular. The topography is fantastic. The topography that is exposed is astonishing. And it's I think, going to be the Crystal Downs of Iowa. I think you're right. That's yeah. exactly what it's going to be. When, I mean, I hate to say this. This is like, I, I, thank God no one was killed in, in the storm. Uh, but when I heard that they lost a thousand trees, I was like, "Oh my, that's going to be even better." I mean, just the views across that topography—it's such a gorgeous piece of land, oh, though. Yeah, it is an amazing piece of land, and I think that we've seen 
uh, I've done quite a bit of uh, photography before, during, and after, and I think some of the some of the views are going to be astonishing to people who had seen it previously. Um, parts of it reminded me of of Crystal Downs without the water, and parts of it reminded me of Chicago. Uh, some of the Alps holes and and the uh, I mean the the ninth is is truly a barren Alps hole that goes up. So cool. Yeah. Vaughn, I'm kind of curious, like as a fan, because every time I, I'm very good friends with Tyler Ray. We partnered a couple projects before, so usually when I talk to him about you guys' projects, it's usually just like fan stuff. I'm curious how many trees were on the property when when it was laid out by Ross, comparative to now. Yeah. You know, with the uh, with the tree removal, was it a big sweeping site originally that it's almost taking even more steps towards? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the front nine is up and down. Uh, some rolling hills and that was semi-forested when ross was there the the bulk of the back is down in in what's called the indian creek flood basin and that was really almost like lynx land it was lynx land it was heathland there were really no trees you can look at photos from the 20s and 30s and it's it's open prairie pasture and over time all all that had been filled in you know during the you know, 50s and 60s, where everybody thought that you wanted to be Augusta, and everybody mm-hmm. thought you wanted to be Firestone. So all they, they just planted trees and lanes and privacy. Um, a lot of that was taken out and taken back during the first restoration. The derecho took care of just about everything else. Yep. So it's almost like prairie dunes in some places. Oh, that'd be amazing. Cool. Cool. And Connor, just to frame it too, I mean, it's the finest use of club money that I've ever seen. I mean, what they accomplished for how little they spent, there's nothing that can compare. The next best would be what Kyle did at Mid Pines and what he's now doing at Southern Pines. Um, You know, the lesson being it doesn't take a lot of money to create something great. And, you know, I'm predisposed with my background to love Donald Ross. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you I had never heard of Cedar Rapids Country Club until in the last decade. Well, I mean, that's fair. I mean, it was over 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I lived in the town. I knew it was a Donna Ross, and there was... Yeah. Sorry, Vaughn. There was no interest in playing it. People would say... People would play Elmcrest, which I was a member of there for years. I don't mean this. I know there's a lot of people from Elmcrest that listen. It's not a bad thing, but it's architecturally not as interesting as the Donald Ross in town. I think that's fair to say. Uh, The features... Uh, I, I think the second hole, I think it's the second hole, the blind tee shot is, I mean, it's just fan. I, I'm a sucker for blind shots. So, I mean, that one, not knowing where you, I thought I hit it into another fairway and I was like 10 yards from the green. It was insane. But maybe, Rand, if you can expand upon that a little bit. Let me jump in. I want to yeah, really give, I got to, go we could not have done that without um, our superintendent at the time was Tom Feller. Uh, he literally looked at it and said, yeah, we can do this. Um, and he rallied his team to say, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll do all the heavy lifting and you guys come do the, the shaping, but we'll scrape everything. We'll plant everything. We can grow grass. We can take down trees. You just give us the plan. Um, we can get it done. And Tom was very specific. If you don't give us a master plan with a real architect, don't call me. Yeah. Literally don't call me back because I'm just sick of making these BS changes without any direction. And it's just hodgepodge. It was just a mess. And thanks to Tom, he he walked it through and got it done for under seven hundred thousand dollars. Whoa! That's how, how much? So yeah. And that's really what it takes to do projects for, for of that scale for those prices. That's exactly how we did Mid Pines. 
pine needles as well. You know, uh, it's to do it quasi in house where you're doing the minimal uh, amount of outside contracted costs because there's always going to be that profit on the outside. We had no contractor whatsoever for for mid pines, you know, uh, or pine needles, and it's just about bringing in, you know, shapers as talented and gifted as Matt and uh, me out there shaping as well, and um, um, and then the superintendent willing to take on that workload. You know, Dave Frickty and our staff uh, uh, they did a fantastic job. Basically, the maintenance staff became the construction crew, and that's an approach that that I have really knowing my entire career really is the best way to build golf courses if you can possibly do it. A lot of people don't realize that when uh, you know Tom built Tom Doak built Pacific Dunes, that's exactly how we did it. I was a part of that as an intern. Uh, the guys that uh, had had worked on on the fine tuning of bunkers and plantings and finishing fairways and and seating and everything else, they're the guys that mowed and grew in the golf course and it just eliminates so many outside contracted costs, which is why, you know, a lot of it is about sand. Uh, in our case, it was certainly there, um, but when you're eliminating all that outside contracted cost, it really helps the client quite a bit. And it's ultimately why, you know, uh, especially if you have good pieces of land, they're really the best projects of the last, you know, 20 and 30 years have been the cheapest to build yeah. a Pacific Dunes, the Sand Hills, uh, yeah. or in our cases on these restorations, is because you have uh, this tight knit group group of guys who uh, essentially, no matter what their background, they come together to do really special special work. Yeah. See, it helps a lot. <laughs> is there a skill set if you're looking at uh, someone's maintenance crew? Is there a skill set you're looking for within the, the the folks that work for that maintenance crew to take on that kind of work? You know, I, I, that, I imagine there's some groups that are just green as green, and you would not want to give them that much responsibility. Am I wrong? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's about evaluating talent. It's just like being you know like a, a basketball coach or a football coach. You, you find the right people for the right positions and uh, utilize their skill sets. You know, uh, and and. In my case, I bring in X amount of shapers, and uh, and they're all already going to be like good guys and guys that are golf guys. Like Matt and I have very in-depth conversations about uh, trying to get to where like a hole location, like we're working on back right hole location versus front left today, and how we want to set that up to get people encouraged to play the right section of the fairways. You know, I hire golf guys because I know they're going to come back with really great design ideas and help me uh, to achieve the stuff that Ross is kind of trying to do. But kind of to your point, I mean, it ultimately comes down to the golf IQ of the membership. Yeah. I mean, the memberships will will win out. And if they want to be able to play the bump and run shot and have emerald green conditions, guess yeah. what? <laughs> something something has to give. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's educating the membership, which is something that Vaughn did so yeah. well at mm-hmm. Cedar, and it's which tough. is how he was able to get done what he did. Yeah. People have been watching the Masters for the last 30 years, and they see green emerald. And that you're right. The two don't match up real well. No. But you know, I mean, in, in the case of, uh, of of what you're doing with those those individual guys, you know, we had a guy named Jose Avila that worked for me on on the you know number two project. He was awesome. He's, he's a golfer, and and he was really awesome at like doing the wire grassing and whatnot, and making it really look cool and natural. I plucked him away, and he's worked on all of our projects. He's working out of Pine Needles today. Works at Southern Pines. He was evaluating talent and, and, and getting him involved and whatnot. We have guys from the Raleigh Country Hill project that were great at uh, Green Times, so we brought them along. We had guys that you know tree clearing as you know Vaughn it's expensive endeavor you know it's uh we have guys on our staff that are capable of cutting down trees we had guys mid pines that's uh they were willing to uh, hammer away on those big dangerous trees and uh so we um, don't have member hatchet days that doesn't happen (laughs) and sometimes it's tough do you have to have to your point you've got to have a super and a team that wants to take that on and they're 
you know, there's only so many of you guys around. So, I mean, I think that you know, I got I have to lob some. And we didn't use a contractor, but there, you know, I'm looking at a couple, you know, guys that are working on projects in the Northeast, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, it's just sometimes it's a different level of of membership, and unless you have, you know, a contractor that can sit and babysit some of these these lists of demands, it gets crazy. Um, another another variation. I was going to say another variation I've seen on that are clubs with a very limited or finite budget, and what they've done in some cases is have an idea of what they want to do overall. But before they get the membership to buy in, they pick a hole, and they'll redo a green and bunker complex and say, "All right, this is what it could look like," and that's proven to be pretty successful. Like Hamilton Hamilton Elks in Cincinnati, Ohio, is an example of that. Brad, you're head of the Donald Ross Society. It's one I'm of the president. president. Head, Pre they say head, I say president. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But they, you're one of the oldest historical societies out there, specifically to architecture. How does the Donald Ross Society fit in with a lot of these restorations? I mean, do you get involved? Do you add input? I know you've been an input with my club, Bel Air, which will hopefully go under restoration in 2022 now. That's, that's really the origin of the Donald Ross Society. It was founded in 1989 by a couple of members from Wampanoag Country Club in West Hartford. They had work done on their course in the 80s, and these people were very unhappy with the result. And that led them to start looking at other Ross courses and seeing what was possible, and they founded the society. And since its foundation, uh, I think the society has consulted for, over f for free or over 120 uh, restoration projects since then. I mean, the, you know, the restoration mode, to my mind, really began with Ron Pritchard in the 1980s. He was one of the first to really start doing it. Well, and you know, kick-started him at the municipal course at Wilmington, which right, is one of the yeah. greatest things the Ross Society so ever did. The Ross Society has been a big part of that ever since. And, you know, we continue to get contacted, like at Bel Air. Uh, I, I would say we're not as involved as we were in that area as before, but we're still very much involved, and we're very much about trying to promote Donald Ross and the preservation of his work, or so restoration of his work. So when you take a look at a course, uh, let's take Bel Air out because maybe you haven't had as much input there, but when a, a club contacts you about potentially rest, restoring a course, what kind of input can the Donald Ross Society give them? What kind of direction? Well, well, typically what we'll do is, depending upon where it is in the country or you know, what the city, is it a private club, is it a public club? Typically what we do, we don't, we don't recommend an architect. What we do is we... Sorry, Kyle. Hear, hear, no, we say, here, here are five or six names, you know. Talk to these architects. Look at their work. What looks like the best fo fit for what you've got in mind for your your course? And uh, because these are all architects, that the feedback we've gotten, clubs have been pleased with their work. So take a look yourself and see what, uh, what looks like the best fit. And, and, and thank God for you guys, because uh, actually Tyler Ray and I uh, have partnered up, and we're actually working on a, a master plan for Wampanoag right now. Uh, we actually actually to present in a couple weeks. Uh, Brad Klein, with his long-running passion there, has also consulted a bit on it. And uh, um, so I know exactly the holes you guys are talking about and what we're trying to do to get them back to where they are. And thank God the golf course, you know, wasn't continuing to go through that cycle of, uh, of uh, you know, steps back 
backward that it was headed for. So kudos to you guys for for kickstarting and helping this movement that uh, has has salvaged a lot of golf courses around the country and uh, and preserved and made it possible for us to do things like like your your Grand Rapids whatnot. And Connor, to your point that you were alluding to earlier, there are no plans for the Elks course. Because Ross lived here. Yeah. You know, it's like Pete Dye. What do you need plans for? I'm going to be here every day. Yeah. I'll just make it as we go. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, that's why you've got to hire somebody who has seen a lot of Ross courses, seen Ross work over the different decades, early uh, 1900s, 19-teens, you know, pre-World War One work. And Kyle's seen it all, and he knows how to dial it in. Um but it's, it's, it's got to be a neat opportunity because it's such a special piece of land as you saw out oh, there. Oh, it's gorgeous. I don't know. I honestly don't know. And, Brad, you tell me how many better raw pieces of land there are than Southern Pines Country Club, the way it goes up and down, the Ross routing. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's magical in the world of golf, but because it's always been a bedraggled course – um, with stuff layered on top, it's never received the recognition that it's about to in the yeah, next six months. It's a great piece of property. There's no doubt about it. The other thing I'd add about Wampanoag, and again, this preceded me, but I think one of the things that frustrated the club the most, or at least these members of the club at most, is Wampanoag actually has all 18 Ross hole and green construction drawings. So, that oh, was, yeah. And that was available at the time. But. Well, that, that's a valuable question here for, I think, both of you. Is I mean... I, we're not going to name names. We're not going to throw architects under the bus or anything, but restoration has changed. We are definitely in a renaissance of, of restoration now, but before we had architects coming in and putting their own spin on things without even doing research, there was a time when that was happening. But the clubs were hiring them to do that. Yeah. I don't fault so the you architect. And people didn't put Donald Ross, people hadn't heard of Seth Rain. Oh, for sure. In 1993. He wasn't put on the pedestal that he is now. So looking back in time, there's a, it's a very murky picture. But to your point, today we have the best talent working and appreciating. If you have a Walter Travis course or a Devereaux Emmett, or, you know, that, that people understand these are works of art and they should be treated like that. And that's the first time, you know, really in our, that's happened in our lifetime, which has been a real Blessing. privilege. Absolutely. To watch. Well, and I'll say, I mean, you may not toot your own horn, but Golf Club Atlas has really helped shine a spotlight on golf course architecture. I mean, nobody 10, 15 years ago really put this much effort into having conversations like we're having today or like the fried egg or, you know, uh, the feed the ball podcast. There's a lot of impactful discussions in golf course architecture that weren't seeing mainstream media that we're seeing now. You know, because people were cut off. Social media has brought people together so that they can discuss this in an open forum that's seen around the world. And that's very powerful. I grew up in Richmond where work was done to a course and there was, you know, the, the club board decided what was going to be done. But there was no discussion. They really wanted discussion within the membership. There wasn't a discussion outside of the membership. Nobody knew who the architect, you know, I mean, so, so it's, it's a lot of it 
falls to how social media can be used for good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he deserves so much credit for it. That is for sure. Because I'm like one of like the, uh, I'm like one of the bonus babies of golf club Alice, you know, like you started that what? 99, 99. I started for Tom at Pacific dunes in 2000. And, um, uh, that's how I got in touch with Tom Doak. I had been studying Tom's, like all of his writings. My grandfather had collected every golf, uh, golf digest and golf magazine all through the eighties. So I kept reading Tom's stuff and that's how I gotten uh, familiar with him. And then when he really started his career with like, you know, as he got into Stonewall, he got some publicity. I knew all about him and read all of his books, but I really had no leg to stand on to get in the industry at that point, other than being a nerd that could, uh, you know, recite something about holes at Marion that I'd never been to. And so when I got in touch with him through there, away I went. So what, yeah, what could you have done without, you know, the, the forum or what, I mean, you, we'd write a handwritten letter and post it off and hope for the best, hope you had the right address. Tom's halfway around the world building something. He gets home to 500 letters. He doesn't miss you, you know. Yeah. So it's, it would have been very hard. You know, when I was, I always wanted to go into golf course architecture, and I, I was singularly focused and driven. That's where I was going to go with school and everything. But I had like a schedule in my mind. I remember when I was 16, 17 years old, I hoped that I would get a chance to get an internship by age 24. I hoped that I could work on something maybe by the time I was 28. It was like top 100 caliber. I started for Tom when I was 19 years old at Pacific Dunes. He simply said that he, he wanted interns, and I was, I was just dying for the chance and i said i will literally do whatever you guys want dig ditches of the rain i'm in and uh fortunately being an oregon kid and having spent so much time in the dunes i was able to and being an architecture nerd you know i i was able to just get out there and, and contribute and do cool things right on the bat right on the bat on a great golf course but it doesn't happen without the opportunity for me to set myself apart by being on golf club Alice, occasionally commenting on there and uh and you know following tom and, and being there to read that post at the right place at the right time and to jump on the opportunity. So it, it happens in all different ways, whether it's re restoration golf club, Alice has been a really cool thing to spread the, spread the gospel, you know, on, 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 you know, the neoclassical stuff and, and restoration, all the stuff that we've been just following suit with all these. All well, these let me, around. let me piggyback on that a little bit. So there's a lot of folks out there that are amateur, you know, golf course architects, uh, we see the Lido competition every year. Um, we see people, you know, writing, drawing sketches of their ideal holes. I, I'd say one of the things about Golf Club Atlas and all the attention that's come to architecture now is that people are actually thinking about becoming a golf course architect a lot earlier rather than some people just falling into it. Uh, if, if you want to say like a, a Maxwell, you know, going from banker to architect. If you're going to talk to like a Matt, Matt, maybe you can dive into this too. How do you stand out? Like if, if there's a young person listening right now, and let's say they're 18 years old, they're graduating high school, they've got a passion for golf course architecture. How do they go about getting into the business, learning the craft, and then hopefully someday becoming, you know, a mainstream architect? It's a tough, it's a tough battle, but... How sure. they do that? Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of it we, we kind of touch base on a little bit there, you know, um, uh, between his background, my background, you know, I was working maintenance on a golf course, you know, Matt, uh, you know, studied turf grass management. That was kind of the direction that I was going. The pe I get a lot of different resumes and, and the ones that always uh, you know, stick out to me are the guys that are really interested in architecture one and, and they love to play and but 
mostly it's that it's 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 the ones that offer to literally do anything you want us to do dig ditches in the rain uh it's those guys that i can always tell that really have the dedication and they're going to stick it out you know they're going to really enjoy doing the work and they'll try anything you know when i was an intern i can remember us like pull it peeling up like uh sawed out of pacific dunes to move around in the areas when i would go home i would be filthy at the end of the day like absolutely filthy and i was having the time of my life and uh you know i remember that with matt you know uh i brought him over to do like a help with a run one whole renovation he did awesome shaping work right out of the gates and i could just tell he was having this time of his life with it. it's the people that really have the passion for it uh are the ones that are going to do literally anything out there and uh and that's and it helps you to take the projects to the next level we have an internship an intern on our project now now, and he's having the time of life just plant wire grass and doing those kinds of things and uh those are the people you can tell you can they're going to eventually get up to shaping and uh and uh and contribute but if you have those three things together they play and they love to play uh and they're interested in architecture and they're willing to do the the hard work uh they're they're gonna um they're gonna make it and that's not anything new i think oh like Tom used to say that about Pete Dye, you know, that uh, he felt like he could turn anybody that really loved golf into, uh, into an asset on a project. Well, somebody who's 40-ish like Kyle, guess what he had to go through? 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, there's no work. So you have to love it to stick with it. And so there, there are people, you know, in this 40-year range who've worked with Bill Corr, Gil Hans, Tom Doak, we are so set for a great future in architecture. It's true. And I think what you're saying, as much as anything, just like Ben Hogan, you got to dig it out of the dirt. Exactly. Right? It's not just yep. simply sitting in an office and drawing it's out pretty drawings. Cam, for <laughs> God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The whole skill set helps, but, uh, but it's all of it together. 39, by the way, at least. Whoa. In his 30s. I I think there's an important thing that, that sort of ties this whole conversation together, too. One, education of the membership, as Rand said, uh, because when we first started, I had members that said, well, does anybody really know who Donald Ross is? It's the only Ross in Iowa. You know, it's like saying, does anybody know who Frank Lloyd Wright is? So we benefited from education of the membership. And Brad Klein, Brad Klein came to Cedar Rapids in 2000, and he said, you got to cut some trees. And I think they ran him off the property. I'm not sure. But well, he, that was the mentality when yeah. I was a member at Elmcrest. It's, it's too tight, and they're like, that's the way don't we want it. Back. Yeah. Never come back. So luckily, uh, through the committee and the work and the, uh, the president at the time, a guy named Jason Hafner and Tom Feller, and they threw down. I said, look, we got to do this. And I, I was the golf chair, and I said, we have to teach the membership. And we went back to Brad. We got him back, and we were able to – this is in, in – 2011 2012 we were able to point to things like golf club atlas and say look we're not making this up the stuff you guys are promoting is heresy it's stupid it's idiot it's idiocy and this is a donald ross course you need to respect that this is a donald ross society let's consult them let's see what we have and everything that we thought we had we had more because we were able to do the research and there had been some recognition of the value of, of the investment in golf course architecture because if you have a if you have an asset, if you have a Frank Lloyd Wright house and you you slap a double ride on the side, it's it's going to be decrepit. <laughs> well, you know, to the, to that point, I mean, I, I deal with this at Bel Air. We have people, I think, in every club. Every club has members that just can't stand taking down trees. I just see it as indefensible at our clubs because we have the Gulf of Mexico that runs all along the course. I'm like, take out the damn trees. Would you want to see that or not? <laughs> Nobody wants to see it. Apparently, I know. 
I remember uh, I've been a member of LA Los Angeles Country Club for almost 30 years, and I went to all of Gil Hans's presentations back in 2009-10 when he was first getting started there. And I remember people yelling at him about the trees because the trees don't grow naturally in LA; they got to be planted and watered and all the, all this stuff. It's a desert. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I guess that flip that back to the architecture standpoint. Will there ever be another like Seth Rayner? Who goes from engineer to architect? I mean, right now, I mean, the path to becoming a golf course architect seems to be working your way up. Can you just, you know, be 35 and just pick it up and be one of the masters? Is that even possible nowadays? What do you think, Rand? Well, I mean, you have to have the opportunity, and there's so few new courses being built. But part of that, and Kyle will speak to this, you know, there's so many bad golf courses out there, mediocre to bad golf courses. And so, you know, I think the best thing that golf can do is get its own house in order. And if there's better quality golf near where you live, I'm not talking about big trips that you take for 10 days a year or whatever, but if you can improve the quality of golf around where you play, then the sport will flourish. And there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of courses that need more brain power put into them. And that's going to be the direction of golf architecture. It's not going to be building on a sand dune site where there's no EPA and all that stuff, to be honest. So, I mean, it's going to be practical. But at the end of that, the sport will be so much healthier than it is. Let me ask a question, and this goes to everybody here. So... Um, Donald Ross has attributed 400 and some courses, I think maybe 300 courses he visited, something like that. Is that fair, Brad? Okay. So let's say one time or another, he, he was there. So here's a question for the group. Um, you've got a Donald Ross course that maybe he didn't visit ran. It's maybe, and I'm not naming any, but maybe it's, um, architecturally vacant in its current state. At what time? Does the architect, the designer, what time, is there ever a time where we say, listen, we need to do renovation, not a restoration? Like, how do we draw that line? That's a tough question. I get it. But I'm, I just, I think there are courses out there. And not, let's just take Donald Ross out. There's just old courses well, out there. Ton, you know, restoration is technically restoring something to back to how it was. Exactly. And there's so much bad architecture. You would never do that. That's a total renovation. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's a big distinction. But if you have, like, let's say a big name connected to it that just happens to be one of their lesser known works or just lesser work, bad piece of land, whatever, well, but like you want to be McDonald at um, Sleepy Hollow. Yes. I mean, yeah. A little Tillinghast, a little, by, yeah. Um, yeah. Tillinghast, the other local. Um, and now it's been united under the McDonald School of Architecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the yep. best it's ever been. Spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. In years. Uh, it kind of splinters off into, into some different areas with it, you know, because um, uh, I always feel like if it's a classic work by a classic architect, it's our obligation to to follow suit with what they were trying to accomplish yeah. on the property. And no one's going to argue with you. It's that next level or the next level down. I do think that, you know, I mean, there is a, a deep talent pool of, of golf courses with really nice pieces of land around the country that should get a, a really solid renovation. Um, but, you know, 
restoration in its in its own right, you know, kind of splinters off into all kinds of fascinating debates and and where it all goes. Case in point, you know, Aronimic, uh, uh, for example, you know, uh, uh, Ron Ron Pritchard did a fantastic restoration there. When I saw that in two thousand two, I thought it was one of the best restorations ever. The only problem is there was this huge debate on on the bunkering during the nineteen thirties. There is like, was it Ross's? Was it not Ross's? And uh, you know, as it turns out, you know, J.B. McGovern, the associate that had done that project for him. He just loved to take their bunkers on plan and make them three and four and five and make all these little clusters and whatnot. And it was different from Ross's work. And um, people were confused as to who it was and, and how it got there. Well, as it turns out, uh, you know, there's a dozen Ross courses out there like that. And um, uh, the where, where he did that, he was one of the longest running. He was the longest running associate, I believe. I know at the end he certainly was because he did the plan for Raleigh Country Club, which was Ross's last course that we worked on last year. Um, but he liked to make the clustering and whatnot, and it was a completely different thing. And that's where, you know, uh, a lot of the time you really got to, you know, either got to dig into the history or you're going to find some surprises along the way. And that's the thing that, that I work very hard on is to, is to make sure that we don't typecast Ross's work. We don't simply assume things on cliche. You know, I think there's a perception out there that every single Ross course on heavy soils was all grass-faced bunkers. Again, there's a dozen of them out there where they did the clustering that uh, McGovern did. There's also... I've seen a bunch of other stuff like your Juana Moisa, for example, completely out of context with, you know, something like a Minicata club where I work at, where it's all the, you know, sheer grass face bunkering and whatnot. He did a lot of really different golf courses. Uh, Seminole is completely different on sand compared to the bunker style here. Tongues everywhere. And it was really smart stuff. People wonder, well, why do Ross have done so many tongues and noses on those bunkers? Well, you know, we've we've been fortunate up to that Corin Crenshaw let us do some dunes work there over the last couple of years. Matt's been hanging out on that frontal dune at Sam uh, Seminole a lot of the last couple of summer times, and you work there long enough, you realize well, it makes sense why he did it. It's, it's so windy there, uh, and you get some such big thunderstorms. It's meant to direct the water where it doesn't destroy the whole face of it. You know, it was very smart and clever how they were trying to make them maintainable and whatnot. Completely different style from the stuff that he did here in in sand here, where it's more sweeping, uh, but sand flash face bunkers compared to the grass face ones they did a lot of different kinds of golf courses and you have to be really careful not to get too typecasty with it you know raleigh country club was a prime example for us the uh the golf course was his very last that they did on paper but unfortunately ross had passed away uh by the time they started to implement it uh jamie mcgovern of aronomic fame had had worked on that uh the plan it's his name's right on there so i knew he was heavily involved but he was aging as well so the construction fell to a young ellis Maples, who is of you know Mid Pines Pine Needles fame, he uh, um, he worked this very first course was Mid Pines, so you know instead of uh, you know we we took the plan and all the places where they had stuff uh, uh, for like bunker here, bunker here, bunker there, bunker there, but we knew that that you know JB McGovern liked to split them all up and make them into clusters, but we also knew that uh, Ellis, being Ellis, he liked the flash face stuff that you would have seen on a Mid Pines. So what we did is we basically just took everything that. What we thought would have happened historically, uh, if it had been the you know the best work that all three men had done together, we broke up a lot of the bunkering that that JB had had on paper, and how he had already done that in paper and places, and we broke them up in places to where we really got an aeronomic sort of feel. Uh, 
And then we got some really big flash face stuff like we knew that that uh, Ellis would have had originally out of the golf course that we didn't have photos of. But we kept the hallmark of all the big picture stuff that Ross created uh, with the intent that it would be reflective of really the best work that the three men would have done together in the in the prime of their careers and whatnot. That's an example of us, you know, trying to get the best out of mo- or the most out of a project that um, um, that again Ross had unfortunately passed away by. Other projects we follow everything right to the letter. It's exactly what's on the air or it's exactly on the plan. And it's about getting the most out of the property so that uh, you know it's the best of uh, the course can yeah, I mean, possibly be. Looking at Southern Pines, Kyle's going to be adding bunkers that were never there. But Donald Ross wasn't designing the course for 460cc titanium heads. And so what you want is just in the Ross theme. Makes sense. Let let me ask you this question. So uh, prior to the pandemic, um, golf was seeing a, a drop in golfers playing golf. How much can we attribute some of that to poor golf course architecture? Would you say? 100%. So if that's the case, what can be done at a community level right. where we there are a lot of very poor to average golf courses that are not interesting to play? And how, how can what can be done at an economical level if you're a city or if you're a small club? Yeah. What can be done to add some architectural interest without breaking the budget. I think we covered a little bit of that about how to use maintenance crew, but what do you, you know, think? Mike Kaiser has shown the way, right? Absolutely. And what he has said is shown is the public golfer doesn't want to be dumbed down. He doesn't want to play dumbed down golf. And so don't treat them like they're idiots. They want something, a cool challenge to overcome. Now it doesn't mean there have to be tons of bunkers and it doesn't have to be Oakmont and the whole thing. Or long. I, I think Aiken yeah. shows that quite you well. Know, um, Delaware Springs in Texas, which some of Core Crenshaw's guys built, they have a bunch of greens that slope from front to back. This stills befuddling the, the people who've played there for the last 20 years. And so great architecture, you know, like Hunter Coombe in um, England has 19 bunkers, right? Augusta when Originally, it opened, had yeah. what? I think 19, 12. 22, yeah. No, I think, 12, uh, no, you're right. You might be 22 and now 20, it's 44. Yeah. Right. So, you know, bunk, you know, bunkers aren't the key, you know, even though if you look at Instagram, you wouldn't know that. Um, so there's just there's so many more ways to get people hooked on the sport through great architecture. Well, let me let me ask one question to that. So if you live in Iowa, right, there's no natural, well, for the most part, no natural sand under the ground. If you're building a golf course to be natural, you're building it at a budget. You, you ha- let's say you have a piece of land that has width. Can you sell people on, and I think Sheep Ranch is an answer to this, but a bunkerless course that has architectural intrigue without sand? And it's- Just go have them play Royal Ashdown Forest outside of England near Gatwick. And yeah. We'll see a bunkerless uh, course that's thoroughly engaging. And, you, you know, it'd be neat if architects couldn't use bunkers as crutches as they often do. Um, you know, and the, one of the things, to your point about building in the middle of the country, if you don't have um, sand, ignoring the sand hills of Nebraska, is that agronomy has come further, or as far as architecture has, this century. So you can get firm plain conditions in a lot of places based on how grasses have progressed. Like Georgia grasses, you look at a place like Trinity Forest, that's just a race course, um, 
you know, and it's so it's just it's a really neat time to be a golfer. Were you going to say something? You know, I think for for all those courses out there around the country, or really, you know, uh, anywhere. I mean, Australia, they could make a killing on this. Uh, you know, the UK, um, you know, just doing great rest- restoration work over there, which really hasn't taken off as much as it has here in the United States. Some places have, but uh, the key is. Like, like he was saying, is to use the whole palette of elements to create great architecture, not just simply relying on bunkers, but, you know, whether it's, it's great vegetation. That's what, obviously, the Heathland courses do so well. As we were talking about with the uh, grassing lines, you know, as you know, Matt, I mean, we spend as much time on, like, mounds and and uh, um, and just, like, sandy hard pan areas or even the vegetation with what we were talking about with the trees today on, uh, you know, uh, on, on the closing holes at Southern Ponds. Um, the key is is to use the whole palette of elements, just great shaping, cool green complexes. You know, if, to me, I think the model would be, you know, like you build like a great, you know, like Ross's Pinehurst er, area work, those kind of green complexes um, where you really get some fun decision making around the greens, the choices of putting, chip, hitting bump and runs, allowing the players to be creative, but just great grassing lines. And like you said, you know, minimum bunkering out there and uh, and utilizing the train to the best of you possibly can. And a lot of golf courses to do some really, really cool work in that category. I think, I think there's one element that's important from an artistic perspective in film. When we stage something, we you have a colorist and, or a designer, and we go for three primary colors per scene. I think what golfers do realize and appreciate is some sort of contrast. So that's where bunkers come in. That's where sky or, or fescue. That's why these things stand out. So I think that the challenge is going to be to keep people interested with some sort of contrast to make the, whether it's contouring, whether it's shading, um, just a, just a, a field of green may not be quite enough, which is why people are so attracted to these overly bunkered or, or, or waste areas. But they're looking for some sort of contrast, and you can deliver that through through contouring. The higher the IQ of the membership, the more they will embrace different things. Yeah. You know, that's the key. And, you know, you, Matt, as somebody that's worked, you know, both the maintenance side and now the design side, uh, shaping side, you know, especially working for somebody like like me, who you guys know that I'm I'm nuts. I'm so particularly detailed. They think I'm like OCD crazy. But I'd like to hear you talk about that a bit because having worked the maintenance side of it, I'm sure you have some perspectives on you know how how we really can get really great affordable golf here in the United States architecturally. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, he was um, was talking about you know different textures and you know being on the maintenance side of it you know the different grasses you can use and um you know the mounding the grassing lines you know to you know curve around and you know the different contours <laughs> yeah you know pre- predominantly it's really the maintenance side of it you know i mean uh uh you know you, you have a neat perspective unique perspective that you know maybe that i don't have as much not having worked at the highest echelon of uh, of maintenance on how we can do you know uh uh you know great affordable golf without having to rely on on billy bunkered super expensive bunkering well yeah i mean it's like Rand said, it all comes down to the expectation, you know, of the yeah. membership. One of my, you know, favorite, you know, my favorite type of golf course is like number two. You know, it's rustic, you know, there's washouts, you know, there's, um, you know, the sandy hard pan areas that aren't maintained, you know, and that, you know, really cuts down on a budget, you know, through a, you know, public golf course. Um, people ask me, hey, would you, 
you know, do you always want to, you know, continue shaping and, you know, do you ever want to settle down? It's not an easy, you know, profession, yeah. you know, if you want to have a family. It, yeah, you're yeah, all over the place, I, right? Yeah. for me is, you know, to go to a course, you know, that probably doesn't have, you know, the bigger budget, you know, and over time when I'm old and sick of working for Kyle, you know, <laughs> gradually, you know. Old's when he course. hits 40, I bet, to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my guess. Gradually take a course, you know, that probably doesn't have a budget and over the few years, you know, you know, turn it into something great that's, you know. Winter Park Nights a great example, yeah, affordable you know, example. Affordable for people, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be a, you know, I don't know. Obviously, you're going to have your high-end golf courses that are, you know, forever be, you know, hiring the best architects, you know, to do, you know, great renovations. But I think, you know, as someone, you know, as my stature is probably not going to be, you know, a high-end architect, you know, but settling down somewhere and, you know, taking a course that's, you know, not as well-known and don't have the biggest budget and, you know, just gradually, you know, turn it into something that the public can play. And it, yeah, I was going to say Lawsonia and, and Jeffersonville. Yeah. I played Jeffersonville, the Ross restored it. You can't, you can't get a tea time in there. And it, you know, as far as I can tell, they don't spend a lot of money on maintenance. Terrific yep. public course. And great examples of it. Yeah. Let, let me. George Wright, just relying on all those great native grasses and topography. You know, kind of, you know, pursuant to the previous question uh, about uh, how to get into this, I always felt like, you know, especially knowing the uh, history of the business, the depression, and what happened to, unfortunately, a lot of those shapers, I always, uh, I always felt like uh, that's part of the reason why I studied turf grass management is I was like, well, if it all goes to hell, I'm going to go get a job on the maintenance staff at a Fraserburr or a Golspie in the UK or even even one of the like the uh, the more uplandy train uh, terrain places, and I'm just going to spend 40 years uh, hacking out bunkers by myself, making it a perfect ten. That's so. the bottom line. You just got to like spending time outside. Yeah, that's the bottom. Line. Well, I'm fascinated with the potential of of public golf. Great architecture extending. Access to excellent architecture to the public at large. The Jeffersonvilles, the Lawsonias, the Winter Parks, uh, you know, Sweetens Cove. I mean, I think just in general, making sure that people have access to and begin to appreciate great golf architecture will enable them to understand what its value is to them entertainment-wise, and they will seek out courses that have great golf architecture. Brad, what is your kind of your... your I, I, I agree that... You know, I mean, if I think of some of the public courses I played before I was a member of a private club, you know, just the thought of going back to them is like a waste of time. But the other issue that I think is is a is one golf still needs to solve as well, and that is just time and cost. You know, you think of so many people, you know, particularly if you're younger or have a family or you're still in the middle of your career. I mean, the, the amount of time it takes to play 18 holes, particularly on a lot of public courses sure and then the cost just makes the sport you know almost prohibitive yeah it's been and the, i'd say the time to play a course probably hasn't changed a whole lot but the way people value their time and use their time and i think it's maybe the social media effect and having cell phones that we're always just getting contacted is drawing that don't you think you disagree i, I don't know i think time i think it's gotten it maybe it's pandemic but it's it's not just publics. I mean, look at look at here. You know, Pinehurst. You know, if you, it, it just depends on how it's managed. I mean, it's it's hard to to get on a course and say I'm not going to get off for five and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's you know, if it's sure. if it's you know, if you're Pebble Beach, uh, you know, you're looking at five and six hours. Uh, so it, it's it's 
it's marshalling, it's teaching people how to play and and try not to be the you know, not to degrade or denude the value of the PGA, but stop playing like a PGA player. Yeah. Look at it from two sides. Look world. at it while you're walking up to the green yeah. and then you get one more look. Get your shit ready, hit the ball and let's go. Does <laughs> can can architecture play a role in speeding up play? I think it can, but I don't I don't I don't blame architecture for some of these bad habits of slow play. Oh, for sure. You know, if you take a course where people have been playing it for for 50 years and getting around in three and a half hours, and now it takes five hours, but there's been no change in the architecture. What the hell happened? That I mean, we need to address that. I mean, it's it just is not necessarily the fault of the architect of the course. It's the culture needs some. The culture needs a renovation, and that, and that includes, includes architecture in, it, in its own right. I mean, that's where Bill and Ben, uh, Tom and Gil have been so brilliant with their architecture the last thirty years. It's part of the reason why, you know. Uh, I I I'm very I feel very fortunate to have, have learned from the men I have. I mean, you think about like the really best golf courses in the world. It's really the strength that that separates them, like a Royal Melbourne or a uh, um, the old course is the prime example. You want to talk about a golf course that has the whole pa- the whole palette, the whole potpourri of elements between the cool green complexes, the recovery shots, just relying on on native plants. I mean, there just isn't that much hazard out there for such a fascinating yeah, golf course. Is all the short grass. Yep. Which is why Pinehurst number two is so great. It's the same amount of short grass. It's a short grass, but it's also you get off the green and you walk to the tee, right? I mean, it's it's like you said, it's it's maintenance packs. It's the short grass. It's the way that it's golf carts. It's golf carts. I mean, I mean, but you're talking about residential courses. I'm talking really just talking. in general. Yeah, but yeah. I was also talking about golf culture. What is it with golf culture that takes a course that for 50 years people could play in three and a half hours, and you can do the same course without too many changes? Now it takes four and a half, five hours, without many many changes. I mean, that's you know that's really uh, a function of people understanding golf culture, how to play, etiquette, speed of play, etc. Um, not trying to line up every putt like like you're, you've got $2 million on the line. And, and understanding how the course should be played and enjoyed and how the game should be played and enjoyed. A lot of that comes back to courses are over-bunkered and the greens are too fast. And they're two of the culprits that just drag play on, right? And which just gets back to poor design, but it also, you know, the green speed is shaped by the member's desire if... You know, the club down the road is at 11 and a half. They want to be at 11. Oh, yeah. 11. The competition between clubs. Absolutely. Absurd. Let's get to a 12. Let's get to a 13. Yeah. Oakmont was a 17 last week, right? It's just, you know, and, yeah. It's hard to be and, and, and all the stuff we're talking about is going to be inevitably the cheapest uh, the cheapest golf courses to, to build and maintain because you're cutting down on the entire acreage that is being finely tuned, maintained. You know, I mean, uh, that's why that's the old that's why the old course model uh, has been pretty much killing everybody for for six hundred years now. Really cheap to build, really cheap to maintain, and it's a hell of a lot of fun to play. And it's just about perfect, you know. All right, so I'm going to ask a difficult question of you all. I'll start with Rand because I like to pick on him. So uh, Pinehurst number two uh, is vastly known for its turtleback greens. Uh, Rand, let me ask you the first part. Was the turtleback design original to Pinehurst number two? That's Well, no, of course not, because they're all sand greens. I mean, you know, the key thing with Southern Pines Golf Club, and one of the things about the restoration is for the first 30 years, they're all sand greens. So, you know, when we're talking about Ross contours, it's going to be these, this man and, and, and Matt who are putting them in, to, floating them into the 
to the greens. So, I mean, the courses could be immeasurably better than it was. I mean, people like to weep when they think of a 1920 Ross course. But, I mean, down here, they were all So let me ask you this. So this is a difficult question or it's not. So carte blanche, you didn't have to work about, worry about public opinion. This goes to everybody. If you got a shot at Pinehurst 2, would it be heresy to take out some of the per- turtleback greens? Yes. It would be. Yeah, I mean, now you could take some air out of several of them. Sure. For sure, just to add for the sake of uh, variety. But at the end of the day, it's all about short grass. It's all about the recovery options. Um, so it would be heresy. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone in agreement. Build them anywhere else. Sure. No, well, and that's a big kicker, too, because... As I travel around the country and I play Donald Ross's, maybe not you know his his greatest works, if you will, but there's a lot of Donald Ross's out there that have become turtleback because in 1980 somebody came in and said all of his greens were like this. Uh, um, Sarah First, Bay. You have to have sandy soil. Yeah. Well, Sarah Bay. I mean, I, I don't know if you played Sarah Bay. Uh, it just went under a restoration last year. You know this. You've played it, I believe, right? Before Pre- and after. And it was you could not stop the ball on the green. They were they were beyond turtleback. It was I don't know, it was like Mount Rushmore on top of you know Washington's head or something. But there's a danger in that too, in that people are it's a point of no return, where it's just literally no fun. Ask John Daly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but do you, I mean you guys have to see that too as you're out there. I mean, you hear people have um, blanket thoughts on any given architect, you name it, whether it's Seth Rayner, if it's Donald Ross, but talking to the membership and talking them out of that, it's, it's a tough situation to get into because the membership believes all of his greens were turtleback. There's an education process. Sure, yeah. And I mean, just the, the history behind the green complexes there, it's a very difficult one to understand. You know, I was lucky that, you know, I had all the historic documentation in front of me, all the photography back then. It's not just as simple as a lot of the uh, explanations people have gave over the years for it, like that it just top-dressed all the way up. It's really, really complex. You know, the uh, the bunker started out being like mid-ponds, where they were really, really high around the greens. And then uh, oh, a lot of the contours that came in were chewed off when they made them grass face. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the low sections basically are this much higher, you know, a couple of inches higher. The high sections are three or four inches lower. So that makes people think that the, uh, the center of the green is way higher. You know, it's an optical illusion. If you really line it up next to, like, true land, land uh, forms around the greens, they aren't that far off. It's just that the details have been slowly moved around over the yeah. decades to where it comes off that it does play a little bit different. But... Uh, ultimately, all the features are mostly in the exact same places that Ross intended. Uh, even so, even though they've been switched to USG greens and a lot of things have changed around, they're just playing, still playing the the core concept that he intended out there. Uh, so uh, um, the the explanation of just how they got there is hard enough to figure out or explain. If you didn't get, understand it from the uh, from that one, just read it on my Cockle Valis interview. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, so it's you got to be careful not to fall into into cliche with a lot of these yeah. things because you know a lot. It's easy to do. Eighties years, you yeah. know, just whether it's the the discussion of he did a lot of grass face bunkers, but he also did a lot of uh, artsy kind of stuff. So uh, how much did he move around between the properties between? Uh, the Pinehurst properties and Mid Pines and Southern Pines and how much of this area did he lo- use as a as a living laboratory and, and for experimentation? Because you have different pieces of topography, mm. you know, Mid Pines and and Southern Pines and Pine Needles have different topography mm-hmm. than Pinehurst yep. Village. Yep. 
You know, that's a, a wonderful question because that really, it's, it goes to the heart of what I've been working on here for 10 years now. You know, um, the, uh, the theme, the theme of the courses was very consistent. But the, uh, the, the concept, uh, what he was trying to accomplish with each design, vastly different, vastly different. With Pinehurst number two, he had huge wide corridors, big corridors and all those sandy hard pan areas around the holes because it was very flat. They didn't have to worry about washouts, and they built really big wide stuff. In Mid-Pines, they tried to do a really tight and uh, just a, like a romantic setting. Like all the corridors are much tighter, but the fairways are a bit as wide as uh, Pine or Summer 2. But you had these jungles around the holes to where you didn't have that buffer. If you went off the edges, you were going, going, gone, and it was Styria, and uh, you were lucky to find it all. But because of the width in the fairways, uh, it was still very playable, and it allowed you to strategize. You could hit to the sides of holes every bit as much as number two, but to get it into those corners where you get a nice angle into the green for a back right pin over a bunker, you had to take your life in your own hands <laughs> to get along the uh, the stuff. Um, and it works the way around this big bowl. You know, I think 12 at Mid-Pines is the prime example. It's it's just such great architecture. You have a, a big sweeping draw tee shot around a bunch of hazards where you can hit a draw and you can utilize the train to really run a shot out and turn it into your own personal uh, speed slot. But then you have to turn around and hit from this hanging lie that just helped you. You have to hit a high fade or a straight ball into a green that is so narrow it is impossible to hold it from the outside of the uh, the fairway. But... You know, he's making you do it from the wrong lie, and that's the essence of Ross's work is that he was, I think, really genuinely the best architect at getting the most out of every single individual piece of ground that he was designing on. You guys, golf course is the prime example. Uh, um, it's just uh, both of you guys, between Wampanoag and uh, and uh, and Cedar Rapids, you know, I mean, he was just so good at that, and, um, um, and it extends to Pine Needles, you know, where, again, it's a lot of side hill stuff at Mid-Pines. Pine needles, it's mostly you have to hit to the top of these hills over and over again. And that meant that, you know, you hit weak, weak tee shots, you're coming in forever, you can hardly see where you're going. But he had some really big openings in front of the greens. It's still it's, it's still neck down, but nowhere near as severe as, as mid-pines where he was trying to get you to have to be forced into in these corners all the time. Uh, and then with, uh, you know, southern pines, that's part of the reason why we're choosing the concept we are there. And going with the 20s work, as we, go, we know as it being one of his older works, that it would rely more on like a little mini force carries and things like that that uh that were part of his early work uh that was really artsy and fun and uh um it was it was it was it was it was like vintage early ross where it was still him like fresh from when he was playing those uh wacky courses over in the uk he just excelled at built building holes and shots that you just want to go hit you know where you want to take a small bucket of balls yeah. and hit whether it's the fourth hole at mid pines or whether it's the 16th hole or the 17th hole or the 18th hole at mid pines yeah. that you know and and it's easy to build a, a green complex is just very very difficult but it snuffs the fun out of it and ross you know would lure you in to trying different things yeah. and if you didn't get it right today maybe you'll get it right tomorrow yeah. and, and that's the health that's why it's so important that he was the king in the home of American golf. Because without him and his input in Pinehurst, you know, and you look at the Phones family coming here and taking some of the lessons here back to Oakmont, et cetera. But I mean, you know, if it wasn't the kind of golf that made you want to play golf, where would golf be without Ross and without Pinehurst? That's an excellent example, for, I think, for all communities that have a golf course, right? Yeah. It's have it inviting, have it interesting, having an adventure, 
to just draw people in and say, gosh, that's an amazing hole. to make you want to play. Yeah. That's a fundamental I agree 100%. Thing. It doesn't need to be difficult, but it needs to make yeah. you want to play. Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, and I, I might screw it up, I'm terrible of naming a hole from memory, but I, I think it's the 11th at uh, Southern Pines. Is that the drivable? It's like 315 with a fade, yep. and the fairway is like cantilevered to the side. I have to ask, and I, you know, I, I walked every hole. I looked at every green. It seemed to be, and maybe it's just you haven't gotten to it yet, but it seemed to be the one that had the fewest amount of flags on. Like the green does not, there wasn't a green about making it larger or contracting it. It just looked like it was just ready. Am I wrong or is it, or is there going to be some work on that hole? That, that, that actually is one green where uh, uh, we're going to do some fairly extensive work because we want it to play more like Ross uh, gotcha. intended, more like a ground game sort of approach into the green. Uh, and that's what you know, we were talking about, like raised greens, as, as you were making the point on many times, Rand. That's one of them where they kind of 90s if I were, they raised it up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So a lot of the orientation is right with it. Uh, it's just that it needs to be, uh, um, it just needs to uh, uh, get, get back down to the right level and whatnot. So that's why we haven't flagged anything on us. We know where our orientation is going to be, and it's going to be pretty close to uh, uh, what is there. Um, but uh, we, need to we need to work with the entire level of it to get it to where you can have those fun shots like Ross intended with the hickories. You just throw it up on the slope and let it kind of trundle, trundle down into position. And, you know, I mean, those are, uh, you know, it's, that too is a prime example of the differences of the golf courses they use doing out there. Well, I mean, there's some this stuff. is a prime example. That hole's going to be better in six months than it ever been in its 100-year history because technology brings it into a drivable range and the risk or reward yeah, absolutely delay. yeah you know back in the days of hickories yeah you're you know, hitting at 220 straight, yeah and then, then you're hit, yeah you know, it was more straightforward yeah. this is gonna you're gonna see sixes and sevens and i mean it's gonna be really neat it's really fun i mean i, I got excited when i saw it i think at 17 i, I just I, I i lost count i know there's at least two blind shots off the tee maybe there's more but there's you know, it's it goes back to that, and I think a lot of courses out there could you know take this lesson is back when golf was was an adventure. You know, it really got you going. Like you don't know, like if you've never played the course, and at the same time when you're playing a match against a buddy and he's the member there, he's the local, and you're coming in, you don't know where you're going to hit it. And he doesn't. You don't know if you're supposed to be on the right side or left because you can't see where you're going. That's actually a great litmus test. If the local doesn't have enjoy a big advantage then it's not a very interesting design yeah agreed and now brad i'm going to go to you here real quick um we were flipping back to design specifically donald ross when you i assume this is a role for the donald ross society when you get into a club that has an interest in restoring their course and they have some of these or they perhaps read some of these misconceptions of Donald Ross, be it dome-shaped greens or, you know, I've heard people say Ross never put a bunker in the back of a green. Is that is that part of the role of the Donald Ross Society to kind of educate them pre-restoration process? Well, <clears throat> one of the things we talk about, and Vaughn's touched on this as well, is that, you know, getting a club through an, an, a, an excellent restoration process does involve educating the membership on what's involved, what Ross did. And, and certainly there are a lot of things. I know when I first started playing Ross courses, people would say things like, Ross always did this. Yeah. Anytime you say always, I always hit the brakes that. on anybody. And, yeah. And, you know, over time I realized that none of those statements was ever accurate. He kind of did just about everything at one point mm -hmm. or another. 
So, you know, educating the membership is obviously a big part of that. Yeah, the greatest single thread ever on Golf Club Atlas was this Tom Mackwood um, thread where he put up 11, I think, pictures of bunkers. He said, name the architect. And everybody started off. And every single, and they're all completely different. Oh, all brilliant. of them were Ross. Brilliant. Right. Brilliant, right? I mean, it doesn't get better than that. You need to know. Right? It really shows you. So... I guess one thing we could do right now, if we could all get together and talk about the fourth hole at Bel Air and why it should be restored <laughs> to the to the island green with the Gulf of Mexico in the background, quasi Sleepy Hollow. No, I'm not going to go there. I, I've made that argument. A grass path through the bunker. I mean that. Oh no! In the back, in the back. Put it in the back. Um, so let's let's finish up here. Let's uh, maybe if we could is kind of an ode to Donald Ross. Um, Brad, we'll go this way, I suppose. And um, maybe if you could share your favorite Donald Ross course. Does it have one. to be just one or can I mention I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a couple. I'm not going to give you 20. All right. Well, if I can have a couple, I'd say uh, Matt's got the sweater on. Uh, Seminole, I just think, is out of this world for so many different reasons. And a completely different kind of course that I also think is just incredibly fun to play is Glens Falls in New York. I just Phenomenal. I think anybody who's played there just walks off, you know, with thoroughly enjoying the experience. And then here in North Carolina, I'd say Highlands is my favorite Ross course in Western North Carolina. Vaughn, I think you're up. We know that answer. Uh, yeah, Better be that we're answer. We're going to take Cedar Rapids. Yeah. I'm going to you know, Cedar Rapids is an assumption, but I have, um, I enjoy the quirk of uh, um, Bald Peak. Hmm. Which is it's short, it's weird, it's quirky, but it's enjoyable. Um, it may or may not be his best work, but I enjoy it a lot. And I and outside of Cedar Rapids, I really enjoy Mountain Ridge because I I covet those greens, those nineteen twenty ish greens. Um, elevation changes with um, just enough water, some crossings, uh, and it, it's just a. There no two shots are the same, no two lives are the same, but it's playable. You know, we can. Yeah. It's, it's kind of that blend of of just pushing to the edge, but you can play it every day and have a new experience. And it's just the the Ross greens there are just greens that I wish we had at Cedar Rapids, and we may after this next restoration. But that is that's kind of my uh, that's one of my favorite places. It is awesome. Matt and I walked that before we started Wally Country Glacier. That I think it's eleventh green, maybe. It might be the best Ross green anywhere. I think it's incredible. I think I hope I got the number right because it is an amazing green. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's another long-term project of Ron Pritchard's. It just turned out superb. Yeah. What's, What's yours? Oh, this is a tough one. I mean, uh, my favorite is probably Essex County. Um, I think there's, it's. I mean, it's just it's raw. It's early in his career. He lived on the course. His, you know. I don't. There's just so many things to love about it. the openness, the different in contours, the front and the back, and how different they are, uh, the shots that it asks, uh, everything about it. I mean, I, I get goosebumps talking about it just because I get so excited about. It. And then there's the whole level of history where you know they were essentially the the sixth member of the USGA and it got lost in the mail, as they like to say it. There's all that, and then I always tell people when you go to Essex County, you have to go. There's a bakery downtown. Uh, I, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but that was actually Donald Ross's workshop where he made his clubs. And I don't even think they knew that in there when I went in there. I took photos in there. and I, It was pre-COVID. This was like 2019. 
And uh, I went in and this, this, yeah, this was filmed in like 2019, by the way. Um, forget the film stamp. Um, but that one just stands out to me as just something unique and special. I love Cedar Rapids Country Club. I think the shock and the awe to me of how beautiful that course is in the state of Iowa. Uh, we've talked a lot about this, the yeah, great courses of Iowa that could be it's not restored. It's best work. But it's no, but it's just, it's, it's like, sh- it's for me, I, I, you know, I don't, I have a hard time saying it's not one of his best works. That's how much I like it. Um, I, I just, there's something about, and I think seminal, I mean, I, I played seminal a couple times, three times now, and it plays differently every single time I play it. And it doesn't seem like it would. Like you know, it's got wide corridors. Sure like you know, with the wind, of course. With the wind, with the yeah. wind. I mean, that's but and then it is, and, and then the greens. How the routing takes advantage of that. Absolutely. And if the wind's blowing at ten, it's you know different. Yeah. Then fifteen. I mean, like five miles of wind makes that much difference. And I, but I also love the fact that I think both Essex and Seminole, to a point, Cedar Rapids. But you can be awkward off the tee and not be out of the hole. You know, you might have a more challenging shot into the hole. You may be on the wrong side of the hole, but it allows you that chance to but like make up for it. The next day. Correct. You're, you're not going bing off. bong all over the place. You have a shot. It may be a difficult one, but it, it asks a question of you. Do you have the ability to make up for the first miss? And I mean, I feel the same way about Newport, which of course isn't a Donald Ross, but I feel like I, I have a passion. All right. You want to? Dive in there. <laughs> we had an event in Rhode Island, uh, the Donald Ross Society, and uh, and one of the events we we played Sakonet, but before we played, we had brunch at Donald Ross's house, which mm-hmm. is still in the, in the family. And Alex, um, the I think he's the great grandson. Um, he had documentation that Ross had been working on the course in 1915. So. Really? So I knew Seth Rayner was nearly hired and looked at the I mean, course. I you know, I think you know Tillinghast. Tillinghast, of course. But. Um, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I'll find, I'll dig into it. We're actually doing the history of Newport country club, um, later in 2021, along with Oakmont Marion. My father was a long time member there. I've played it over a hundred times. I love that. Place. Oh, it's just, and it doesn't have a kitchen, which tells you, know, you, you get, get a cold sandwich, sandwich at the, the turn. turn. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Go, go on. on. Best Donald Ross uh, courses. I'm going to have to keep it here in the home of American golf. I don't know. I feel like there's a ghost in the room, you know, but. I'm gonna have to say Mid Pines. Uh, yeah. You know it. Um, it was one of the first courses. You know, Kyle. You know, had me come down and introduced me to, you know, golf architecture and you know Donald Ross of different styles. You know, they've given me the opportunity to work at Pine Needles. I've done a little work at Mid Pines, and now I'm here at Southern Pines. Um, but you know, the intimacy of you know Mid Pines, the you know how it routes around and. It's just, you know, Everything except the trees on the 16th. Did we take out the trees? I lost a Hickory Championship by pushing a really bad Hickory driver into those trees. I had a two-stroke lead, took a triple. Then I think I bogeyed out through a mental case that I am. Sorry. No, it was pre-restoration. It was pre-restoration. It was like 10 years ago. So it's Remember, remember. rocking the PSA. Remember, Donald wanted to be a jungle on the outside. That's right. Yeah. It's, 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 they they got to stay. It's plenty for blood on the outside there. So I, I remember looking at my partners and I was like, what do you think? And they're like, tee it up again. And I was like, well, there goes the tournament. <laughs> Go ahead. Your your favorite Donald Ross courses. Let's, and let's You know what? Let's make it a little bit more difficult for you. You cannot name a course that you've worked on. Because, you're, of course, you're going to be you know tied into one of those courses. Okay. 
Well, um, you know, Ross courses exist in two different realms for me. One is that I do genuinely think that, you know, when you talk about the five most influential people in American golf, you know, you've got Bobby Jones, the early greats, and then uh, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer in the middle, Tiger Woods. And then to me, it's always been Donald Ross because he, um, he made so many great courses around the country. Hundreds of golf courses. He he really took great architecture to the masses. You know his courses were so good. He had such a talented staff. He just really built really great stuff all over the place. So I think I think to me it's 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 those. You know it's the fact that he had such a lasting imprint on American golf. You know I could you guys have been blowing through my favorite list, including Sakana. It's one of the only places I've ever worked at for free. I'm like Gil, just give me some tickets to the U.S. Open, I, and I had to play golf before I leave. I was like, that's the rule. You guys got to let me play before I leave. How is that thing not famous? You know, I mean, and uh, I mean it is famous in some circles, but the thing should be worldwide. It's just such a cool golf course, and and that really is is it to me. You know, his work here is endlessly fascinating to me, and and they are my favorite courses. Any one of his courses here are the ones that I would have listed, and I could have never narrowed it down to one for all the reasons that you asked such a great question on, Vaughn. He tried to do so many different things, and it nails all the stuff that we were talking about, affordable golf. You know, this isn't cat-in-the-hat golf design here, where it's all bunker here, bunker there, nonsense. This is really layered stuff where he used every element that he possibly could. So to me, his courses here are like, I've always felt like Piner Summer 2 is absolutely this is a shocker one. I think it's one of the most underrated golf courses in the world, just in the same way that people undersell the old course. Um, uh, but to me, it's the fact that he took truly great golf course architecture to the masses. And that's why, you know, Don Ross golf courses, I mean, they've been pretty bulletproof for, for 100 years now. Absolutely. So. Ran? Oh, you know my answer. Southern Pines golf yeah. course. Has to be. I mean, it's the only course I've played a thousand plus times. Is that right? I always look forward to playing it the next time. So what's going on now is just particularly exciting. And for people that don't know, Southern Pines is not long. It's, I mean, 63, 6,400 yards. But it, it, the hilly nature, the topography of the course adds another it's layer to made, it. And you can play it in three hours. Yeah. It's very British. And yeah. People don't get that. Change your shoes in the parking lot, done in three hours, come home happier than when you left. That's what golf's for. Yeah. It's really that simple. Okay, you have to name two more. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll, I mean, obviously, nobody can beat number two in Seminole, but yeah. I mean, Essex County is a very particular favorite of mine. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people don't talk about it. I, I just think it's an interesting A lot of people of don't property. get to play Essex County. Well, so. that's probably true. That's 100% true. <laughs> that's yeah. 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably one of the, the nicks, uh, you know, in the game right now, um, is that there are a lot of our greatest courses are private. And, and again, probably speaks to the greatness of the home of American golf is that you can get on these places, Absolutely. like come here, play these places. We have places like Bandon you know that are though, if you same do model. Good things in golf, you will be invited to so many fine private. hundred percent true. I just, uh, it's, I, don't I agree get into the public private. Debate. You know, Rand, that's an excellent point. I tell people all the time, I get people that ask me, you know, how do you play all these places? And I just say, golfers are the nicest people. Yeah. Just want to show be a nice their, person. Yes. When Oakland Hills reopens, do you don't think they're going to, the historian's going to want to show off what Gil has done there? He's going to be so proud because that's been a battle to get you know, that the chair done. The of the Heritage Committee there is a friend of mine. So I'm, 
I'm definitely looking forward to going back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I look at places like Oakmont. I, I feel like I don't know this, but 60 to 70% of the people that play Oakmont on any given day are from the outside coming in. It's one member, three guests, almost round the clock. Very minus, common. you know, Very I, would, I would take a little bit of a different view of that because then when, if you push that golf architecture to more of the masses, you'll get a wider appreciation of what playing good golf architecture means. If what do you mean by that? Muni, if you're playing a Muni and it's, it's a fairway and it's circle green, and then you come back, you play another fairway with circle green, you play a, a par three with a pond in front of it with a circle green, you don't really know what golf architecture means. You don't know what golf means. You don't know what yeah. golf means. I mean, you're so never going to get hooked playing that. No. Yeah, I, and I think that it's important for... I want to shoot low. Yeah, for, for this group and the people that are listening to this podcast and viewing this video that was shot in 2019 before COVID, um, anybody that is... is Break, we can cut and edit here. Anybody that is listening to this or seeing this should understand that it is important and incumbent on the industry to push good golf architecture further into the public sector. Because if it's just the great courses, yeah, a bunch of us can get on the great courses, but that doesn't mean the masses can. But when the masses play a, a mid-pines, or a pine needles, or a pinehurst, or a bandon, or a sand valley, and they get access to that, when they go back home, they say, our stuff needs to be better. Do you think that, I mean, I think municipalities have an issue with golf in a different way, right? They're, they're looking at it as a, a business, and, it, and sometimes it's a cost center Well, here's the rather thing. than a so public. The projects, you know, some of the projects that we're helping, yeah. they are looking at golf as a quality of life asset, and they're constructing their plans and their conversations and where, where they're saying that, hey, you know what? We have this golf course. We know it's decrepit. But we value excellent golf access for our people. What can we do? And that's you know not a lot of it. But there's Winter Park. That's a good that's a good place to start. But that should be part of the conversation. That if I've got an old golf course and I've got the land that's already dedicated as a municipality, I can improve the quality of life and economic development for my people and my my constituents if I invest in the golf architecture. Yeah, and I think if you separate hard to do in the United States, the golfer from the golf cart, you can get that kind of athletic leisure walking through the park, enjoying the atmosphere, hanging out with your family that yeah. you get, unfortunately don't get when you have two people to a cart and they're on one side of the fairway and I'm on the that's other. That's not golf. Yeah. Riding in a cart. I know, golf. I know, but, but it's, but it's a reality we are dealing yeah, with now. In America, it's a reality. A hundred percent. it's not. Right. What, what I find is interesting is, uh, I'm not going to call out any of my friends. Um, I, I have friends who that go to Scotland and they see the beauty in that. They see the beauty in playing and walking. Yes. And the health benefits. And then they come back and they go right back to their golf cart. That's on them. Yeah. It's on another show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's on us to spread the gospel in in all kinds of different ways, you know, uh, whether it's in the design business, you know, I mean, it's very easy to build golf courses that are really hard and really difficult or, or make them conversely completely too simplistic. You know, it's a, it's a true art form to design for, you know, and keep uh, the best players in the world engaged while making it 
well within the capability range of the beginning level player. And that's why it's it's incredibly hard thing to do, which yeah. is why there's only about 10 people in history that really actually mastered it, if it's yeah. even that many. So, uh, you know, but uh, uh, it's about, you know, it's about spreading that gospel. You know, uh, what's what's really fun and what's really works works for everybody. And that's where, you know, uh, where we get started with it. Social media has actually really done a lot to, to help that over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, the game is the, the game is in as solid of a place I think uh, as it has ever been. Other than the the challenges with technology, you know, uh, uh, we have, we've come so far in architecture. Just last look at how far Pinehurst Southern Pines has come since I moved here in 20 years. Before it was narrow fairways, Bermuda ringed fairways, and they could have been in South Carolina, North Carolina, wherever. Now. Mid Pines, Pinehurst Number Two, Dormy—they all look like they're in the sand hills of North yes. Carolina. So they reflect their native environment. And so when people come here, and this is one of the great destinations in the world of golf, the message they're taking home is a really strong, powerful message, which simply wasn't true 20 years ago. Yeah, and yeah. it's a public access message, right? And that's, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that's really best about where we work at. I mean, uh, you know, Mid Pines Pine Needles is, is you know, very, very affordable. And that's that's one of my marching orders for Southern Pines is this this needs to be uh, accessible for everybody. We can't we can't overdo it. Well, I mean, the yes. smartest guy I know in golf, David Nermoyle, pointed out to me the finest turf in all the world for golf is the big, huge patch at St. Andrews. And that's all public play. Great grass loves play. So, I mean, the private clubs that get 3,000 rounds, you know, great for being precious, but, I mean, we can move on from there. All right, folks. I know, Brad, you need to get going here soon, so we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much. This is this literally exceeded my expectations. We, by the way, folks, just you at home in the car watching on TV, I don't think we did not have an agenda for this, which is a rarity for the Talking Golf History Show. Usually I have an idea of where we're going to go with questioning, but I am so happy with the direction we went. So thank you so much, all of you, for showing up and giving us your thoughts. The study of the history of the game of golf is a study in golf course architecture. While some choose to focus on the players, like Bobby Jones once alluded to, His real opponent was always the golf course. Behind every great player, every Hall of Famer, there are stories of holes and hazards laid out by some of the most amazing minds in golf course architecture. Some of these stories have been told. Some of these stories need to be rediscovered. And some have yet to be written. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.